Okay, this one's autobiographical. I grew up in church and I was saved, and I was saved just before I turned 10. But in the years following, especially as I started college, I encountered the teaching of evolution in a systematic way for the first time, and it messed with me. And I want to tell you some of that story on today's Beyond the Notes. I grew up in a home with a mom and dad who loved Jesus. I went to Bible-believing and Bible-teaching churches. But somewhere in there, somehow, I must have had crop up in my own little childhood and adolescent brain the notion that there were, were certain things that maybe were true on Sunday, but they were sort of a special category of Sunday truth. And the rest of the week, well, there was rest of the week truth. I only know that that must have gotten in there because a wedge got driven into that mindset when I, when I began college. The, uh, the biology that I took in high school, I was in, a, in a, a pretty small public high school in a rural area up in northeastern Florida, Nassau County, Florida. And the biology that I had in high school was taught by the head football coach. Now, I love head football coaches. I, I, I think they're a wonderful group of people. But at our high school, what we did in biology class was usually during the first half of the year, X's and O's on the whiteboard from what either had happened the previous Friday night or what we hoped would happen the coming Friday night. And we did a lot of football in class and then would hand out the the test that the test the textbook publisher had mass produced to go with the given chapter. So somewhere in there, we'd read the chapter and take the can test, and just so we got a biology book on the, our biology grade on the books. But I didn't, I didn't pay any attention. I didn't have to, and that was my background in terms of biology until I got to college. Now for me, that's Valdosta State in South Central Georgia. And it's the fall of '79 when I start, and for the first time, I encounter a. A, a good communicator, a, a winsome teacher who, who begins to lay out the, the foundation for understanding life, evolution. And he's laying it out in, in such a, a organized way. And there's an, sort of an inevitability about it as he explains it. And it it's, makes such perfect sense as he explained it. And he's a smart guy with lots of letters behind his name. And there I sat. And my, for the first time that I clearly remembered it, my Sunday truth and my rest of the week truth couldn't both be true. And that's problematic. As my own little slightly aging brain starts to come into its own, I realize that can't work. Well, I got mad and I went to my pastor, who was a good friend, for various reasons. He and I had a good friendship. And I went back on a weekend and I kind of pitched a fit, as I recall, to my pastor angrily saying, how come we don't deal with truth at church? How come we we tell this fanciful fairy tale about the origin of things and I have to go away to a secular university to have laid out for me the real facts of where life comes from and its origins and its developments and all that other oh-so-smart evolutionary stuff? And I was born again, and I, I knew and, and know that I was born again. So it hurt my heart that something that I had been taught to be foundational was, in fact, just not true at all, this business of six days and um, 
such. So my pastor, wisely and lovingly, but also intelligently, asked me a question. He said, what if I could introduce you to the work of a bunch of pretty high-powered, well-credentialed scientists, not Sunday school teachers, scientists from university faculties all over the world, who have written and published and who hold to the biblical account as true. And maybe, just maybe, they have credentials beyond whoever got stuck teaching freshman biology at Valdosta State. Maybe, just maybe, some higher-powered academics hold views that align with the truth of the Word of God. Well, I lit up like a Christmas tree. He handed me a stack of books, many of which I still have, if not the actual book he handed me, because I had to give those back. And remember, this is 1979. You don't go to web pages. You go to books. Um, but I own copies, I believe, of almost every book he put me onto to this day, and more and more and more as I have built my own library. Time passed, and I read those books, and my, uh, my, my lights began to come on regarding the truth of the creation account. And in the second semester review for that same freshman biology with that same professor, by the way, I made A's in both semesters because I grasped what he was explaining and was able to give it back to him on tests. And that's important. If you're going to take the course, take the course, even if you don't embrace the outcomes. In the second semester final exam review, I asked if I could ask some questions. And by then, he may have picked up on, on my worldview. And he said, I'm not here to do a Bible study. That was his first response. And I said, I promise you that the questions I have to ask come from the realm of the natural sciences. I don't have any Bible questions for you. I have some science questions for you about which you, that which you have said is the very foundation of understanding life. And I asked him three questions, and here they are. I'll take them one at a time. The uh, first question concerned itself with probability. The view of evolution that he had taught was the view that, that tiny little mutations accumulating over time was the, the means of progressing from one life form, lower life form, to a higher life form, and ultimately, of course, to mankind, and I suppose beyond. But this, this gradualistic accumulation of things, where each step is itself very improbable. They gloss over that a lot, but that really, really matters. Because if, if, if an event, if a given event in a sequence is improbable, then the, the overall probability is phenomenally improbable. The evolutionists want to attack that by adding time. Okay, a million years isn't long enough, so we'll go for multiple millions of years or multiple billions or in some cases even trillions of years. The problem is that makes their chain of improbable events even longer. And while the evolutionists explain this, the mathematicians have always stood in the back of the room going, no, nope, 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 nope. If I, if I hand you a six-sided die and say, roll a six, the odds are one in six, you can pull it off. If in order for a given outcome to be achieved, you've got to do it twice in a row, that's one in 36 that you can roll a six twice. Um, and three times in a row is one times 36 to the sixth, which I can't do in my head. And four times in a row is one in 36 to the fourth and et cetera. The longer you make the chain, the more the probability makes a plunge toward effective zero. It's a parabolic approach. It never actually makes zero, but it comes so close to zero, it doesn't matter. So how do you string together a mutation happens? 
it happens in a way that it's not dominated out. So a male with the mutation and a female with the mutation meet and reproduce, and the mutation is not dominated out, and the mutation gets to get kept and proliferated through the whole population, et cetera, et cetera. That's remarkably improbable. You can't have it. The mathematicians won't give it to you. How would you explain that? And he said, well, I would explain it by saying it did, in fact, happen. And I said, as long as you and I can agree, that's a circular argument, not an explanation. Okay, next question is the question of physics. It is not a theory. It is the law of increasing entropy, or the second law of thermodynamics, that systems decay over time. Things don't move in nature from the less complex to the more complex. They go in the other direction all the time. Uh, degradation happens. But evolution says that new and improved increasing things are being edited into the DNA molecule across these vast stretches of time. That, that upward amendation of the DNA molecule flies in the face of what we know to be true about systems functioning in the physical universe. There's a huge physics issue. And again, while the evolutionists glibly sit up front and talk about their progression by these tiny little steps, the physicists also have always stood in the back going, mm-mm, mm-mm. Nope, not in this universe. Nothing works like that. And we see in our universe, we see extinctions. We see mutations that do harm. We see the, the winding down of our created world, not its ever advancing improvement, exactly as physics would predict. Well, the fall is the reason for that. But there is nothing that can swim upstream against that in this universe to the degree that evolutionists require it. His response to that was, well, if you already have energy and a plan, and by the way, he was right. If you already have energy and a plan, you can move forward against the tide of rising entropy predicted by the second law, energy and a plan. And I said, all right, then is the energy? And he said, the energy is the sun beaming onto the earth, massive amounts of energy. And I said, okay, cool. What's the plan? He said, simple, the DNA molecule. And I said, that's like saying my house built itself because I have blueprints. You've not explained the origin of the blueprint. What is the origin of the DNA molecule itself? Spectacularly complex. Well, no one can account for that by natural means. What a huge statement, and he's right. He just gave away the store. The third question is the question of paleontology. And this is the one because he had been teaching using all sorts of fanciful diagrams and made-up cartoon imagery, this progression. The classic one that people use all the time is horse evolution. You see that in almost every evolutionary textbook. The progression from some primitive horsey-looking thing to a modern, you know, secretariat. Um, and for those of you who aren't my age, secretariat isn't modern. How sad is that? At any rate, modern, modern racehorsey type horse. Uh, the problem is those intermediate forms aren't in the fossil record. Uh, the, the leading paleontologist of our era, I reminded him in class that day, is Stephen Jay Gould. He has passed away now, but he was the head of the Department of Paleontology at Harvard. Paleontology is the study of fossils. So you got to figure the department head of fossils at Harvard University might know a thing or two about the fossil record. I don't know much about the fossil record, but I figure he did. 
at that time, when I'm asking my question in class all those years ago, he was still alive, still writing. Gould took the position that the fossil record does not support gradualistic evolution. The guy in charge of the fossils at Harvard said the fossil record doesn't support the story of gradual evolution. So he invented a theory. It's called hopeful monsters, or more technically, punctuated equilibrium. The hopeful monster theory teaches that a population of, of beasties exists in equilibrium. Until one moment, there is a huge leap forward. The, the cliche is that the first bird hatched from a reptile's egg and that the evolutionary change happens so fast in these monster steps, evolution happens so fast that it does not leave a record in the fossils, said the guy who running the fossils at Harvard. It's an argument for evolution from the lack of evidence for evolution in the fossil record. It's kind of magical. And at that point, my, my professor got very, very frustrated because there's no wiggle room. And I said, you're not arguing with me. You're arguing with Dr. Gould. I'm just, I don't know. I'm presenting his viewpoint and I'm presenting it accurately. I can run down the footnotes if you'd like. And he got so mad, he dismissed class. He said, this review has now become counterproductive. And very angrily, he dismissed class. Here's my point. Those questions that I asked, I asked in the spring of 1980, and they're still unanswerable. Evolution, as commonly taught in high schools and undergraduate and even graduate level, cannot escape the boxes created for it by mathematical probabilities, the way physics actually works in the universe, and the story that is actually told by the fossil record, all of which are completely consistent with what the Word of God tells us about origins. Dig into that stuff and think about it a bit. And we hope by now you're liking and sharing this podcast. And we look forward to being with you again in the future on Beyond the Notes.